Okay, good morning. We're ready to start Sunday school. There's our the verses we're going to cover. I'll start us with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for the fellowship of the saints and the authority of Scripture and the opportunity we have to learn and study and put the gospel foremost in our hearts and minds and serve you by grace through faith. And we pray that we would learn more about all those things and more today in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, so Paul is at Pisidian Antioch and in a synagogue. And he's preaching Christ to the Jewish people. Now, we covered part of this verse right here last time. The first part, verse 29 when they had carried out all that was written concerning him. To review, the New Testament makes it very clear that what all happened in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee with Christ was the fulfillment of Scripture and that he is the promised Messiah, was promised to the patriarchs, promised by Moses, promised in the Psalms, promised in the prophets, and that he fulfilled prophecy. So it wasn't simply some horrible tragedy of history that the Messiah was rejected, but it was also God keeping his promises. And he's, notice here, he's carrying out that which was written. So there's a positive steps being taken that are carrying out God's intent. Last week, I think we looked at Isaiah 53 and how that's the fulfillment here that's going on. It was written about him. And now we want to go to verse 30. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So here in a very short verse, we have the most essential truths of the gospel. Christ was crucified. He was hung on a tree. We talked about that, I believe, last time, which was a few weeks ago. The tree in Greek is zulon. So the word cross really isn't here. It's translated that way, but it's zulon, which is tree. That was a reference to the Old Testament, where in, in Deuteronomy it's cursed is he who hangs on a tree. So that's what was being fulfilled through that. Now, laid in a tomb was narrated in Luke 23.53. Luke 23.53, let me read that to you. And he took, took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. So Luke Acts here is bringing things forward. I'll be preaching on this on Easter. I'm going to preach from Matthew. I'm going to cover, basically do a read-through, just to give you a little preview. I've got the work done on it. I I don't know exactly how this all is going to result in a PowerPoint, because there's way, way too many verses, so I'll figure something out. But rather than drilling down 
to all the nuances of every grammatical construction and Greek word. We're going to do a walkthrough starting in Matthew 27 where Jesus' enemies call him a deceiver. And then we'll take it from there all the way through to where he's worshipped by the women who first saw him in Matthew 28. So we're going to walk through quite a bit of scripture on Easter. And what I'm going to do is to show that there were people on the scene who had means, motive, and opportunity to refute the claims of the disciples and the early preachers, and that they did not do so. And so we'll be making a legal case for the veracity of the Christian gospel. They had means, motives, and opportunity, but they were unable to do so. And the reason they couldn't do so was because the tomb was empty. And there was no body to be found other than the living body of the resurrected Christ who appeared to many witnesses. People who have gone to a lot of work to research this came to the conclusion that the tomb was indeed empty and the theory that the disciples stole the body is fallacious on its on the surface. And I'll talk about that. I don't want to do my whole sermon, but on Easter, if you want any bring any along any skeptics who want to hear evidence for the veracity of the gospel, that's what we'll be doing. So it's very clear that he was laid in a tomb, and the tomb was hewn into a rock, okay, according to Luke and Matthew. The way they would seal up such a tomb was to have a huge flat disc that was thick and heavy that could be rolled downhill across the entrance of it. And then, according to Matthew, they sealed it to show if anybody did tamper with it, it would have been known that it had been tampered. And that there was a very big, heavy rock and so on. Some of you have gone to Israel, have probably been to Gordon's Calvary. Is that what they call it? I was there. It's pretty impressive. They can't prove that was the one, but it certainly lets you know what it was like. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you want to probably go there. I'm glad that I was able to go there. And there was an evangelical who was there at that place speaking to the groups that came through. And when I was there, and I was in 1983 when I was there, he said, we can't prove this was the exact one, but here's what he said. I don't worship an empty tomb. I worship the resurrected and ascended Christ. And that was right after we were at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that was the most demonic place I've been in my entire life. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Were you there? Am I telling the truth? I mean, it was like out of a horror movie. It was so bleak. The Catholics and Greek Orthodox are fighting about who owns the place, but they've got these people. It's just dark and dingy and stinky and smoky, and they're in these hooded things that look like Darth Vader. Get us out of here. 
And you're so don't ever think that this Rome and um, Constantinople or whatever it is has anything to do with the gospel or biblical Christianity. It isn't, and it doesn't. It's a lie. It's false. It's not Christian. It's wicked. And they worship everything but Christ. So you go to Gordon's Calvary, and the guy says, we worship the resurrected Christ. You go to the church, the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre, and you got a bunch of totally deceived, wicked, horrible people that think they're somehow God is pleased with all of this. It's like they're presiding over hell. You can be a mouth of two or three witnesses. You've been there. To firm, you're exactly right. It, it's very bleak. They wear black, as Bob said, and they're fighting over who is going to run that site. And so it's very oppressive. They don't like each other. They're wearing things that you can't see their face. They don't want anything to do with you. And you go to Gordon's Calvary, the guy preaches the gospel. We saw, probably wasn't the same guy, but... I don't know how long yeah. he was there or what year you were there. Yeah, but. there was somebody preaching the gospel there, though. It was a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah, and it was light, and it was bright, and it was glorious, yeah. and the other was a horrible, dingy, miserable place. Yeah. People would rather worship objects and places than the Lord, and that was the contrast. We went to another place when I was there. There was um, a Mount, I think it was a Mount of Olives. There's a stone that they claim Jesus sat on. I don't know if you saw that one. They had to guard it and, and cordon it off because the stone was wore down from people trying to get a piece of it. So if they think I can get a little piece of stone that Jesus sat on the stone and put it in some kind of a little jewelry, then I'm going to be closer to God. With Christians like that, who needs pagans? They don't believe Christ. They don't believe the promises of God. They don't believe the scriptures. They don't believe in forgiveness of sins. They don't believe in the promises that Christ is coming again. They believe in things and objects and in processes and self-affliction or any kind of thing they can dream up that's not from God. So I'll be talking about this when I finish Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is going to be the basis of a book. Should the Lord tarry and should I stay strong and healthy? I want to write a book about the definition of the church. Okay? And the book will be about how the church is defined in the book of Ephesians, especially chapters 1, 2, and 3. The one thing you don't ever want to do if you're a Christian leader, because I know people listen to this, don't put your children in charge of anything unless it's obvious they're truly born of God. Being a child or grandchild or great-grandchild of somebody who was a famous Christian qualifies you for nothing. It qualifies you for hell, but nothing else. The only way you're a child of God is to be born of the Spirit. And let each generation, let God raise up leaders for each generation. We spend all of our money on institutions, buildings, massive things, we want to be like the world. We want to get Title IX sports in our colleges, right? We want all of this and all of this and all that, but we don't want the gospel. I've seen this because Eric was talking to somebody who was a leader, bringing, what was it? Tell, them, tell us what they, brought, what they brought in. Yeah, there's a, there's a gal that um, some of you are aware of this. There's a nice young Christian woman. Her name is Haley, and she's attending Northwestern College. 
and they were going to bring in her organization. It's a student body. It's called Young Americans for Freedom. And they were going to bring in a pro-life speaker named Star Parker and to come and speak at their chapel. Well, the Northwestern University banned it, and they said it didn't reflect their values. Well, I started looking at the one who banned it. Her name is Nina Barnes, and she's the head of student affairs at, at Northwestern College. Well, she teaches spiritual formations. She teaches pagan idolatry as a forms of sanctification. That's what she does. And she's in charge of the student life. So every single chapel that they have is social justice now at Northwestern College. Everything to do with you have to feel guilty because God made you a certain color, and you have to feel guilty about that. And that's what they're going to keep doing because, again, Marxism, they have to have their perpetual haves versus the have-nots. So that's what Northwestern College has come to. They don't even have a Christian worldview anymore. So they'll, Yeah, they'll the same thing more. happened to Bethel. That's how I meet, met Eric. And so uh, I'm going to be very bold and claim there's no good reason to create these things. Right now you can get an education online. What you need is teachers that know what you need to study and to supervise your study. But you don't need brick and mortar and millions and millions and millions of dollars and a lake. Okay, and yeah, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I do believe in Islam they say that... uh, purport that Jesus did not, never died, uh, that uh, he maybe the body was switched or whatever. And I find this, is this on okay? I do think that verse 29 and also in Luke, when they talk about uh, when they had carried all this out and everything was written, they speak in such uh, imagery that you can see it. And so it really just slams Islam right down. And Jesus did die. He was in the tomb. And it really happened. I just want to share that, Mark. Yeah, you're right. Amen to that. The Bible says we didn't follow cleverly devised fables. This isn't fables. This is cold, sober history. And Paul himself said, if Christ wasn't raised, your faith is worthless. People have self-justifying faith now because it makes them feel good. I don't feel good believing lies. I only want to believe the truth. Yes. Yeah, two things. I wasn't really going to talk about Northwestern, but since I'm an alumni there uh, and I took classes online, so I wasn't on campus. I wasn't subjected to all the chapels and stuff like that. The biblical studies, they still had professors that that. I would have disagreed with them on some things, maybe about uh, church government and various things, but uh, they still had some uh, really good professors on uh, the biblical studies department. But as they introduced when I was starting their, their Christian worldview curriculum, uh, before that, students could just take, uh, for part of the Christian worldview, they could take classes straight out of the biblical studies department uh, and get really in-depth theology and studies of scripture. Uh, but when they formed this Christian worldview curriculum, uh, at least half of those classes were very, very poor indeed. I mean, the, the theology was bad. That's where the spiritual formation uh, came in uh, and things like that. Uh, they had a couple that were uh, that were good, but th- that's where all the bad stuff came in in the Christian worldview curriculum. Instead, of just like the, the Christian worldview wasn't for, a Christian worldview. Biblical classes and like study the Book of Isaiah or Mark, yeah, or take Greek or Hebrew or something like that. Uh, but what I was going to say that the main thing I want to say: Jesus did not say, "I will build my seminary, I will build my college, <laughs> I will build yeah. my my, uh, my parachurch ministry." He said. I will build my assembly of the redeemed, my congregation. Yeah, 
the Ecclesia. By the way, the interesting thing to me, and you and Eric and some others should help me, and should I actually be able to get write this book? I don't want to claim I'm going to do something that never happens because it could never happen, the Lord willing. The, here's, here's the point. This, I had the same experience, by the way. I had great teachers. I'm not ungrateful. I love the, the teachers, the interaction, the debate, the library. I feel like I got a great education, but the chapel was horrible. They just want to make you feel guilty. You're a wicked sinner. Why? Because you live in the suburbs and you're the wrong color. I finally got so tired of it because how do you gain forgiveness for what race you are? I I don't know how to be forgiven of that because it's not changeable. And the race that's causing the problem is the Adamic race. And we're all part of that. And the only release from that is the last Adam, which is Christ. But the fact is that that's what they want to do. They want to create guilt that's inescapable and ubiquitous and ill-defined and amorphous. And you can't escape, you can't escape, you can't escape. And the only way to escape is to vote for more Marxists. And then they gain control. That's how it happens. Just the Marxists take over. Now, it's interesting, Adam, that the people that are doing that, when you get into theology class, every one of them can can define the church biblically for a theology test. They have the right categories. They know about Ephesians. They know about the visible, the invisible church. Okay? And the church universal and triumphant and the church militant. They got the right categories. But when it comes to actual practice, it turns into a social institution that has nothing to do with the church as defined by Ephesians. And I'm going to make a real radical idea. Why don't we have the church defined by Ephesians? In this sermon right here, Acts 13, it's one of the longer sermons in Acts, we have the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll go on and see that. The sermon, by the way, is in Pisidian Antioch. So each Sunday I want to show you some more slides. I bought these, so I got to use them. Now this here, it says here, the ancient writer Polybius refers to the Dosemi Pass. And uh, though most biblical atlases depict Paul traveling on a route largely due north from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. The Via Sebastian route is held by several important recent scholars. And so this is one of the routes he may have traveled to get there. And here is some more idea of what the route would have been like. It hasn't changed in all these centuries that Paul would be traveling on to get to Pisidian Antioch. And here's yet another one. It says here, columns lined the north side of the Decumanus Maximus of Pisidian Antioch. The street continues eastward past the theater on the left and up the hill to the intersection of with the Cardo, the shops and workshops lining these streets date to the first and second centuries A.D., Note the ruts visible in the stone tiles indicating a heavy volume of wagon traffic. I'll have more of these. There are more of them than I can do. 
It's amazing stuff. The Bible doesn't have to apologize about history. In fact, biblical theologians who believe the gospel want people to know history. The more you know history, the more likely it is you're going to believe that the Bible is the truth. History is not our enemy, it's our friend. Because it verifies the, what the Bible says. This is, these aren't fables. This isn't science fiction, but the truth. So there's some more from Pisidian Antioch. Now let's get back. Now verse 32. At the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Notice how often the word promise is used. I've been using it a lot. I think it's a term that needs to be understood clearly by Christians. And here again, Paul emphasizes the promise made to the fathers. Notice he's preaching to a Jewish audience in a synagogue. And the early preachers wanted to make it clear that Christ didn't come to start a a new religion that had never been conceived of before, but he came to fulfill what God had intended from ancient times. That the very details were predicted in Scripture and that this is indeed the virgin-born, sinless, Son of God, the Messiah, the prophet who was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, the one that Isaiah predicted would suffer, would be hung on a tree, would die and be buried and raised on the third day. And now Paul and the others are sent to proclaim, preach his euangelizo, that's a verb, uh, here translated preach to you the good news, and it's a verb form of our word for gospel, evangel. So here is the euangelizo, the, the proclaiming of the good news. This is what we have to do. If you want to know what a gospel assembly is like, you can tell really soon by listening to the sermons. When you go to a gospel church, what you hear is the gospel clearly preached, forthrightly preached, and Christ is preached. If you go to a seeker church, they'll talk about Christ, but they'll water down the details so he sounds like a nice, kind, loving, religious figure from history, but the idea that he's also coming to bring judgment at the end of the age, as Eric's been showing us, we're not going to hear about that. In fact, there are a lot of details you never hear about. So Christ is who the Bible says he is, and we don't have to be embarrassed about one thing. The, The evangelical gospel is being proved true and accurate over and over and over again, Brother Eric. Yeah, I have a question and a comment, actually. Um, Okay, my question is, I'm looking at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through uh, 35. Please read it. Yeah, I'll read that. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hallelujah. Okay? And, and that, to me, to me, what I think, it, and this is my question, I think it's critical that we understand that this is the new covenant in Christ, which the Mosaic covenant was a, a conditional covenant, and that covenant has been nullified. But in, in Christ, we have an unconditional, eternal covenant. We're grafted in to those promises. And so that's how this all connects together, all of these prophecies. It's so Absolutely. important. And I think that that is the case with the Jeremiah. I don't think that that's all end times. I think that that's No, that's that, it's cited in Hebrews as being fulfilled in Christ, the new covenant. Absolutely. And, in fact, uh, we did a whole series on the radio on Hebrews that we recently rebroadcast. It covered all that, Yes. And it's not a, a promise of prosperity or, or that the plowshares, will, the, the swords will be beaten into plowshares quite yet. It's a promise of forgiveness for sin. And that's yes. it, right? The okay. forgiveness of sins. Remember, uh, we're in Luke, actually. Remember in Luke when they brought this guy in and Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven? Boy, that needs to get preached, doesn't it? God bless Luther. That was one thing he wanted preached was the forgiveness of sins. But anyhow, forgiveness of sins. They were murmuring about it. And uh, what happened was Jesus said, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Arise, take up your bed and walk. Then the man was healed. Isn't that amazing? The miracle that Jesus did was to prove that he forgives sins and he has authority to do it and say your sins are forgiven. And so the miracles weren't an end of themselves because all the healed people end up dying. But when your sins are forgiven, you'll live again. There's a resurrection. And so the sins, forgiveness of sins, good point, thank you. And it, it, it needs to be preached. And so you on Galizo, and then Paul will cite scripture to identify the promise he has in mind. I say Luke 4.21. This is Jesus at his hometown synagogue. He says this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If I remember right, Eric was in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And then in Acts 26, 6 later, a little preview here, Paul said, now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul was making it clear that if his Jewish audience rejected the Christian gospel, they were rejecting Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, 
and the prophets. Imagine, that's a pretty strong message, isn't it? Wow. This is the promise made to the fathers. That's what this is about. And we're saying it was through Jesus. Verse 33. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now I have the full, full uh, reference on the slide, Psalm 2, 6 through 8. And so let me read the context of that to you, Psalm 2, 6 through 8. And as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the the very ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 2, 6 through 8. Now, there's certainly eschatological implications here. Now, the book of Hebrews claims that Jesus is reigning in heaven and proves it from Psalm 110 a number of times. Other passages in the New Testament prove that he has been installed as king and now he's reigning in heaven. But the Bible says that's not the end. He will indeed come and conquer and the nations will be his inheritance. Now, I know Eric knows a lot about this. You're our eschatology expert. Could you comment, please, on the already not yet part of Psalm 2 here? Or anything else you feel is pertinent? Yeah, you know, one interesting point is I think in uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is up on the mountain. Elijah and Moses, they go away. They're eyewitnesses of these things from the law and the prophets. But you hear the voice from heaven. The Heavenly Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And it's probably a conflation a little bit of here of, of Psalm 2-7. One of the points that the biblical authors came away with, I know Peter did in Second Peter, was that this implies Jesus must come back. His reign certainly begins in his enthronement, but he will, in fact, have the nations as his inheritance, and he will reign over them. And that's why, for example, in Revelation 5.10, talking of the saints, it says, they shall reign upon the earth. Notice it's not they're going to reign in the clouds, they're going to reign in the new Jerusalem. It's on the earth, and Jesus will come to earth. The nations will be his inheritance, but it is inaugurated with his enthronement after his resurrection as he is seated at the right hand of God. Yes, and let me read that to you out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 3 through 5. Hebrews 1, 3 through 5. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Notice the deity of Christ. Upholding all things. Now we've learned a lot in Ephesians about that, haven't we? That all things is literal and that God is Lord and sovereign over all things, all of the created universe. Here in Hebrews, the writer ascribes that to Jesus as the exalted Lord 
who actually is holding together the entire universe, who upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, there's that forgiveness and cleansing, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's the significance of right hand? Power, authority, majesty, all that that entails. Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Name in the Hebraic understanding denotes a person's nature and character and person. Attributes. The attributes of Christ are much greater than that of all of the angels. There are a number of ways we could say that. Number one, let me say this. Christ is eternal, non-contingent, non-created. All angels are created beings, meaning they're finite. Christ shares the attributes of divinity as far as the trinity omnipotence, omniscience, and so on. Angels do not. Some of the angels are fallen. They sinned and rebelled. Even within the divine council, as you see in Job and so on, there are fallen beings. But Christ is the holy God, God the Son. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Applied answer, none of them. And again, I will be a father to him, and he is son to me. So the sonship of Christ means he is the very one predicted by the scriptures and revealed on the earth during his incarnation, ascended to glory, and is seated at the right hand of God. One of the glorious truths, I'll be preaching on this the week after Easter, coming up in in, um, Ephesians 3, is discussion about through whom we have access. And just to give you a little preview Access is so important. Hebrews makes it very clear that this session of the Christ at the right hand of God doesn't imply that he's far off and uh, away from us and so utterly other that he can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Because the Bible makes it clear that he can, having suffered. This is all in Hebrews. And so, the creator of the universe, who's ascended and seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of the majesty on high, it says in Hebrews, is also loving and kind and compassionate, and he cares about us. And the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. Just think of Christ 
God the Son, having such love and omnipotence that he can hear the prayers of everybody praying simultaneously on the entire earth and know the details of each one of those prayers and answer those according to his sovereign will and purpose. And the Bible does make that clear. I I think the the implications of it are, are breathtaking, aren't they? And how wrong it is to come up with all these man-made schemes that we think we got to go through. I, we don't here, I hope, because we hopefully have been taught better. But how many people think they have to jump through hoops to get God to listen to them? So many people. Millions and millions and millions of people go to inside of buildings called Christian churches and think that God won't hear them. It could be they don't know God. Most of them don't. But they're willing to do, give away their money, to suffer, to suffer self-deprivation if they can, to, to do anything to try to hope that maybe God might hear them. And I I use that as an evangelistic thing through the critical issues when I get contacted by people I know that aren't Christian. I always point to the Christ and his session at the right hand of God, the forgiveness of sins, that we can go directly to him, that he cares for us, the compassion of Christ. But do you really think that Christ would say, well, why don't you do these endless repetitions over and over again, and when you're done, maybe I'll hear you Better yet, I don't, I don't think i got time. Go talk to my mother. <laughs> now, frankly, when we look at it that way, it seems utterly absurd. But I'm telling you right now, more people believe that than what, believe what I'm talking about. It's all here in the Bible, but they don't read it and they don't know it. Because that's why we have to get it out there. He cares for you. He's compassionate. And so he upholds all things with the word of his power, meaning nothing happens by accident. He's there. He'll take care of us. We do suffer. We do have unanswered questions. There are things that we don't for sure know why or what. But I keep seeing it all become clear as history goes on. God does take care of us. Am I done already? All right, good. I got time for what something else then. Hey, I finished a PowerPoint in one Sunday. Mark this day down. You saw it. Now let's talk a little bit about some of these other things. I've got several things here. I've got the early church uh, talking, uh, early uh, Christian apologists talking about how the Christians were blamed for everything that was going wrong. Here, let me get to something neutral here. Um, But let me talk about the milieu that we live in. Eric, this morning before we started, was telling me about his conversation with someone who was promoting forbidden occult practices for Christians. It's really a failure of faith. We don't believe what God said. 
We don't believe he hears us. He don't, we don't believe he cares for us. And so many believe a pagan worldview. And a pagan worldview doesn't believe in providence or any of these things we read in Hebrews 1, 1 through 5. They don't believe that. They believe in evolution and things like it. So I picked out another thing that we've dealt with. And this is this idea about what access do we have to reality. Now, Harry preached on that recently. Have you ever heard of a socially constructed reality? Social construct. Have you ever heard of deconstruction? Okay, so good. You're, you're up on some of the apologetics then. Uh, the idea is that we have no access, as Eric was, when he was talking about Kant, to the real world. And so we live in a socially constructed reality, but the one we've been in has been made for us by a bunch of powerful people with bad motives. Okay? And these powerful people with bad motives have to be exposed and deconstructed so we can get to what's really going on and get this process of evolution. But let me cite a guy by the name of Stanley Grenz, who I cite in my book, because he was one of the premier guys promoting this alternative view of Christianity. And so let me just quote this, and because you, you're seeing this. You might think, well, Bob, why are you bringing this up? You hear it on TV every day, but you just maybe don't know that's what you're hearing. You constantly hear this stuff thrown at us by politicians. Here's what it says. Grants. There's a real universe out there we readily acknowledge, but this reality is out there, lies before rather than beneath or around us. Now, this is their idea that we're all evolving into something. So it's out there, but it's out there. Ours, says Grenz, is a universe that is in the process of being created. Stop right there. What's the difference between the process of being created and God created? One has a finality to it. Let me explain in very simple terms, what a biblical worldview looks like in its simplest way. History, according to a biblical worldview derived from the Bible, begins with creation and ends with judgment and then the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth. But as we know the world we live in, it's headed for judgment. And in my debates with the sort of folks that I that I, that I cited, I've, I have ability to debate one. That, oh, does that really turn their crank? If you say there's a future judgment, it's real and it's going to happen, you just pushed every wrong button in them that they could have pushed. They will have a very hard time restraining their anger. The guy I was debating, Eric, were you there? People tell me he was just turning red. He was... But he couldn't appear to be angry in front of his friends. Uh, but I just said there's a future judgment, and it's just, they, they get so angry. They can't believe that, that, that God will ever judge anything because we're evolving. 
Okay, back to this. Grabs. We're in the process, there's your process theology, of being created as many as scientists acknowledge. What? Beware, saints. When they're saying 98% of, 99% of all the scientists say, I don't know that they've ever studied science. I studied science. My grandson just graduated with a degree in physics. 99% of scientists, who, who are these people? Well, they don't seem to know. Scientists don't agree on anything. <laughs> Honestly, they don't. They don't. They don't agree on anything. If you ask a general enough question, you might get the answer you're looking for. Do you think humans living on the earth, how many, how many billion are there now? I, I lost count that I ever knew. Over 7 billion. Do you think 7 billion people living on the earth has affected the earth? Oh, yes. See, 99% agree. But it's just a vacuous question. It's not really saying anything significant. So scientists think, so scientists now believe in process theology. So this guy claims. Then he cites a book about theology in an evolutionary world. I have that in my book. Therefore, says Grins, rather than merely being discovered by, via experimentation, the new creation toward which our world is developing is experienced through anticipation. Please take note. That's exactly what the battle is right now. We do ourselves no service to be Christians with the gospel in this world and not knowing what the debate is about. We've got to know what the issues are. They're saying everything is evolving spiritually, socially, and physically into a paradise. And what's stopping it is naysayers who are saying things like judgment is coming. That's why when I said that, the guys debating just turned red as a bead. Judgment is coming? Isn't it ironic that these churches have creeds that they cite sometimes? Who's coming to judge the quick and the dead when you ask the pastor? He doesn't believe that that's true. If you don't believe it's true, then take it out of your hymnal and quit quoting it. Just have the courage to be honest about what you really believe. Can you blame the people sitting in church hearing that week after week after week and then when you go ask the pastor, he doesn't believe it? Um, we got to tell people what we really do believe and then stand by it. Be honest. Lay it out there. Everybody's not going to love us. But we're going to at least tell them the truth. Let's go on here. Grenz is saying, experience through anticipation. So I'm experiencing Star Trek because I watched the movie and anticipate it's going to be like that someday. There's going to be a real tractor beam. Or whatever it is you anticipate. Quote, Grenz again, as God's image bearers, 
we have a divinely given mandate to participate in God's work of constructing a world in the present that reflects God's own eschatological will for creation. Page 272 of the book that I quote from of Grimm's, who's no longer on the scene of history, but his book is really one of the ones they all believed. Now listen, where's the mandate to participate in God's constructing a world in the present that reflects God's will for creation? See, we're supposed to be making paradise on earth according to this view. We're supposed to be helping the evolutionary process of all things. And if we're not doing it, we're rebelling against God. I learned this in seminary when the liberals were speaking in chapel. Eric learned this. That's how we met was to go debate this. If you're not participating in the whole process of socially constructed reality, you're a wicked sinner and you're in rebellion against God. Well, how do you know that? From the Ten Commandments? No. From philosophy. German idealism. German romanticism. Imagine the world that you want. A beautiful, idyllic world where everything's in harmony and there is no disease and there is no uh, disjuncture between humans and uh, animals and plant life. It's all one harmonious, beautiful, socially constructed, anticipated reality. Imagine. And if you won't imagine it and you get up in a pulpit and say, it's a big lie, they're leading you to hell by telling you there is no hell. Don't believe this. Repent and believe the gospel. Oh, literally, they'll have your head if they could. They're so, the guy I was debating went and told, somebody heard him tell his parishioners in a break, I want to tear this guy's head off. But he was really nice when he got the mic. <laughs> nice guy. I wasn't worried about that. I've had my life threatened before, many times, and he didn't do it directly to me. That's what we're dealing with. If Christians don't know what's going on, I don't know who's going to. So that's why I'm doing a worldview thing here. So then I write about this. He goes on based on the idea of socially constructed reality and linguistics to explain how we participate with God constructing the future world God intends. Let me comment on that. That's why there is so much acrimony and vitriol that's going on in the political debate about what word was said. Oh, yes. If somebody just cites Genesis, male and female, he created them, you have just violated every law and rule of social discourse in America. You're one of them. And you must be stopped. How dare you say that male and female are real categories that God intended and that is true because of God's creation. You are 
anti-transgender. Am I making this up? I'm not. See, you're noticing what the socially constructed world is going to look like. It's going to be erase all the categories. And the first one that has to be erased is the category between God and man, the creator and the creation. We can thank Peter Jones for giving us simple categories, one-ism and two-ism. So let me just quote a paragraph here that I wrote about this. So in this view, we now live in a socially constructed linguistic reality that's not objectively known. That's the reason for the insistence on changing all the terminology, because speaking the new terminology is how the new world is constructed. If you refuse to, you're not getting with the plan. Quoting from this book here that I wrote, the real world, they say, is the future world. The words of the Bible do not authoritatively and objectively tell us the details of the future world. And God is imminently, that means close at hand, involved in the present world, creating and causing it to move toward the future world. That's their view. And I'm just describing it. In this view, we are to participate in God's work of creating the future world, but we have no objective knowledge of what this future world is yet. I don't know if any of you ever build anything. I build things, but only those things that don't have to be looked at. Like a workbench to pound nails into out in the garage. But some of you are builders. Some of you can take the scheme for some are welders or carpenters or whatever, electricians. You can take, you can take a scheme and create it because you have an objective plan about what it's going to look like so you know how to get there, right? Now, for us, that's the objective scriptures and the authoritative word of God that comes from two mountains, Sinai and Transfiguration. And uh, so we have Moses and the prophets, Christ and the apostles. And so we have the objective plan about what is, is and is not God's world. And the objective plan tells us that God is building his church, and that he's building it stone by stone on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and that as people are converted, they're added to his church, and that God in his powerful sovereignty is putting us at the right place and getting us there at the right time. And we're part of this and that this will go on as long as he deems in his sovereign plan, this part of history goes on, the church age. And then there'll be the rapture and then all the things Eric's been talking about in Sunday school. And then Christ returns and judges his enemies and set up the millennial kingdom. And so, your world, my dear brothers and sisters, is totally at odds with the world that's being socially constructed by the philosophers. I'll have to have you get this one. Our other mic crashed. Yes, Adam. 
I think one of the things that Christians uh, must realize uh, as far as worldview uh, is to be like uh, the author of Hebrews where he talks about all those who have gone before who are looking to a kingdom uh, not of this earth, not of the kingdom of darkness, but one that comes down from heaven. Amen. Uh, one that's not made by human hands. Uh, because if we think that we're just going to uh, build Christ's kingdom uh, and make the kingdom of darkness behave, uh, we will abandon the gospel. Uh, we will abandon the mission of uh, going forth, making disciples, uh, teaching all that he commanded. That's the central mission. Christians have liberty uh, to vote, uh, but uh, a remnant is a very, very poor voting coalition. <laughs> yeah, as far as, uh, uh, as, far as uh, there, there'll be a lot of disappointments. Uh, I'm not doing there, so good. Everybody I voted for lost. And, uh, and a lot with the, with the seeker movement, with Rick Warren. Oh, they're, they're all... Politics is very central. I mean, it's the very heart of their uh, their world, <coughs> and they're abandoning the gospel. Uh, they're they're forsaking yeah. the truth. Eric has been preaching. You have to look to to a kingdom from, from yeah. heaven. Eric's been preaching about that, about the role of civil government, the restrain evil, the duty of Christians to pay taxes, and to be good citizens. We'll get that as we go through Acts. Paul wanted to do things lawfully in regard to how the Roman government ruled the kingdom that they had. And he appealed. And he appealed to the authorities. Romans 13. Yeah, and so uh, he said in, in, in Athens that God draws out the boundaries of the nations. But we feel, I people ask me why I vote, because everybody I voted for lost. I feel it's a civic duty. The authorities have asked that that's what we do, so I go vote. Uh, the person I ended up representing me is the one that hates Israel more than anybody in Congress. That's what, that's what it is. But I'm not shocked. Paul didn't, have, didn't necessarily have sympathetic people ruling over the world he was in. So I appreciate uh, that you allow me to spend a little time dealing with worldview. It's so essential. And I promise that next week I'll have something better going on with this soundboard. I think we know what it is. It's this cable going into the wireless. We're going to get a different one. Um, And I appreciate that you came to church. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Help us to be lights and uh, serve you faithfully in the present of a dark world as opposed to what you have said. But help us to be faithful by your power and grace through the work of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.